Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are exploring chapter 11 of the Mockingjay book. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens in this chapter? Absolutely. As they stay in the bunker for three days, Katniss obsesses over Prim's observation, wondering what the capital would do to break her. She finds an answer by watching Buttercup chase the light from a flashlight, and Katniss's realization that Peeta is alive and being tortured as a weapon against her does indeed begin to break her. She seeks out Finnick, who is going through the same thing with Annie, and Finnick lends Katniss a piece of rope, advising her to keep herself distracted by tying knots as the only way to avoid breaking down. After the all-clear is given, Katniss, Gale, and Finnick are immediately taken to command and told to shoot a propo showing District 13 and the Mockingjay's survival. Up on the surface, they review the attack and how Peeta's warning saved lives, but when Katniss sees a gift of red and pink roses from Snow, Katniss is unable to get out a single line, knowing that all her work as a Mockingjay will be used to hurt Peeta. She turns to Hamish for comfort, but then is sedated when she breaks down. When she wakes up over a day later, Hamish tries to cheer her up by telling her about the mission, sent to break Peeta and Annie out. But Katniss sees through his demeanor and forces him to reveal that Gale has volunteered to go on the dangerous retrieval mission. I'm sure that won't stress her out at all. <laughs> no. Gail, this isn't helpful <laughs> for her. <laughs> well, when we go into our striking moments, what's standing out to you or what are you noticing for the first time? Yeah, one thing that stood out to me because I completely forgot it was how Katniss's revelation is tied to Buttercup's game. All I remembered was that they play a game with the kitty. Oh, that's so funny. I remember, but yeah. Yeah. From, but, like, yeah, I didn't like remember you. that Yeah, her <laughs> revelation here and her breakdown was so tied to that. So that was something that struck me as just, oh, I forgot about that. It is kind of funny about that, though, because I'm like, has Collins had a cat before? Because <laughs> it just kind of reads to me as somebody who doesn't have a cat. Mm-hmm. Because I've never met a cat that would, like be so obsessed with the light that they would be like pacing and like wailing and stuff until you turned it off. They would just lose interest and go do something else, you know. Maybe there are cats like that out there. I don't know, but. Yeah, it did kind of feel like a force metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, in previous readings, I was like, what cat cares that much about a flashlight? Like, it's not a laser pointer. But then I realized they're probably talking about like a really high intensity flashlight that has like a very specific circle on the ground that it makes rather than kind of the 99 cent store flashlights that I had growing up that are just providing a little bit Barely of light to, work yeah, exactly. to begin with. <laughs> yeah. But other things that struck me were re- have been so connected to our conversations thus far mm. and the way that we are kind of slowly and deeply engaging with this text, uh, which I, I really appreciate. Um, for one, the fact that the moment that Finnick realized that Katniss's love for Peeta was real mm-hmm. is also the same moment that Snow realizes that Peeta could be a weapon against Katniss. Yeah, I just, I, I think I find myself revisiting Mockingjay as so much as the consequences of catching fire in a way I haven't before. Mm-hmm. Because we saw so much of Katniss, yeah, kind of stepping into her agency and catching fire and making choices. And we talked, I remember a lot about how Katniss 
made her plan, like she made the commitment that she was going to sacrifice everything up to her life for PETA to ensure that PETA's safe. Mm -hmm. But then her choice at the very end to instead shoot the arrow to fight against the real enemy rather than focusing on protecting PETA was really her deciding not to fulfill that commitment as her first priority. Mm -hmm. And now she's finding out how she's kind of doing the same thing again. Even though her intention in becoming the Mockingjay was in large part to protect PETA from if District 13 wins by making him pardoned and, and, and what have you, she also is realizing how her actively being the Mockingjay puts him in danger. And yeah, it just, I think that, that I've always understood, you know, how hard that would be, but seeing her process all of this after we spent so much time with all of her decision-making in Catching Fire um, just makes me relate to Katniss a lot more than I think than I had in the past and like really recognize how, yeah, this, this would absolutely break me too if mm -hmm. I was in that same kind of position. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it shows too that like in the realm of entertainment when we're dealing with war and stuff like that, it's so often like these, it's like either you strategically outmaneuver someone, the enemy forces, whatever, mm -hmm. or you physically break them. But here, because he can't physically break her because she's protected, as far as he knows. I mean, he tried to, but obviously that didn't work. Uh, then, you know, he's going to try to psychologically break her. You know, what are the the methods that he can try to to use to make her stop doing what she's doing? Yeah, absolutely. And that actually kind of brings me to my last point, which is how Katniss becomes traumatized when she sees and smells the roses. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, in my previous readings, I really kind of, that rubbed me the wrong way. Because while I understand why Katniss is traumatized, I feel like having, it seem like Snow is doing this purposely because he understands how the roses traumatize her, gives him too much credit. Because I don't under, I don't really feel like I would have known why Snow would have known that that is so triggering for her. This time reading it hit me that, oh, he probably had cameras in her house. And so when she visited in District 12 and she saw the White Rose and she had that response, he was able to see that. I'm like, okay, that at least explains that away in a way that I find satisfactory. Because previous readings, that always bugged me. Yeah, that, that never really bugged me because... I always just kind of read it as he didn't necessarily know that it would, you know, have a particular traumatic effect on her, but he does it because he can, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's rubbing their face in the idea of the resources that they had. It's like, oh, well, we can just do this, and it's completely frivolous, it's completely needless, mm -hmm. but they'll do it anyway, and, like, this is the lengths that they'll go to to make a point, mm -hmm. and he's just petty. Like, I think that he would do it just for his own sake, because he would enjoy it, mm. whether she gets anything out of it or not. You know, because it could also have the other effect of making her more angry at him or, right. or whatnot, but... 
Yeah, that's yes, true. Snow. And so I guess he's so theatrical. Yeah. It's just like, oh my god, true. Snow. <laughs> yeah, and that, I guess makes me think of another reading where Katniss, her internal monologue in this chapter, kind of giving Snow that credit, is a symptom of her mental health at the moment, where she's feeling paranoid mm-hmm. that. It's not just Snow is doing this because Snow's theatrical and ridiculous and, like, he does it because he can. But she thinks he must know how much this affects me. And he's doing it because he is this, yeah, kind of marionette puppeteer who is able to be almost all-powerful in this way. But it's overestimating him in that way. Yeah. I mean, there could even be the reading where... Snow hasn't been torturing PETA because of what she's doing. Mm -hmm. It's because he also hates PETA. Yeah, true. You know, because, well, one, after he warned District 13, then that would be even more intense. But, like, as we know from Songbirds and Snakes, he thinks of people from the districts as beneath him. They are not his equal. And PETA also pledged one month of, of their winnings to ruin Thresh's families. You know, he has done things as well. Yeah. And, I mean, even him not trying to win the games in the 74th games is something. Him comforting the woman from District 6 as she died. Like, he also does things that are subversive of the games. And so I could also he see He announced the him... pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, which helped tip the people over the edge in the capital to rioting, you know, which they've never done that we know of, at least. And so, yeah, I think there's also the potential that it's not necessarily to get back at anyone in particular, Mm -hmm. but that he also hates PETA. He also does it because he can. He hates every victor because... He doesn't want any victor to think that because they've won the games, they are safe. Mm -hmm. They could have leadership in their communities. Like, he wants to break all of them, I think. Um, Maybe in District 2 or something like that, that might be an exception. Not entirely sure, but yeah, I I think that's a possibility as well. Totally, yeah. And, And I do find that idea interesting that... Katniss's view of Snow as this master manipulator who makes all these decisions in a way to target her is its own kind of hubris or like overconfidence in her own role or her own like importance to Snow or even yeah an example of how she is kind of in a precarious mental health state so being more paranoid being more suspicious being so easily further traumatized uh, and guilt-ridden can make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, you know, going into some Songbirds and Snakes spoilers, so if you haven't finished that book, skip 45 seconds ahead. I also wonder if part of his hatred for Victor's stems from his hatred of Lucy Gray. Mm. That she's the only one that he feels like, whether it's true or not, you know, had some type of hold on him and manipulated him and 
he doesn't know to this day if he actually killed you know and so maybe all of these other victors he wants to destroy because there's still the lingering question is if she won you know totally yeah <laughs> well, what about you what are your striking moments from this chapter so i love fennec i noticed with all the annotations in the <laughs> book this, this week yes i mean this is just a great fennec chapter yeah I just really appreciate that unlike everyone else who seems to think that it's fine to bring Katniss's feelings for people into public discourse, mm. you know, that Phoenix says, I'm not saying in what way you love PETA. Yeah. Maybe you don't even know. Like, he, he gives the allowance. He doesn't force her into a conversation she doesn't want to have. He doesn't expect her to know when these are the stakes. And so I think it's very thoughtful, not just in general, but for Katniss, mm -hmm. because she does not want to talk about that. You know, maybe other people would be fine, but that's not in her personality. And um, yeah, he just, he is able to talk about it with her and we don't have her inner monologue bristling at that mm -hmm. Yeah, because of how he approached it, which I, uh, yeah. It's just great because he's great. And then the other one that I had was that it was very nice after all of this time, you know, looking at Hamish not doing what he should be doing, not doing it over and over, like really having him kind of step into the role of supporting Katniss. Yeah. He's fallen miserably short for a while and now he's actually doing things that probably he's not very comfortable with mm -hmm. um that because of being alone for so long because of not getting close to people for so long i don't think it would come naturally to him yet he's trying for her and he he comforts her and he waits by her bed to be there when she wakes up and this time not to threaten her. Yeah. And this time he's not hiding from her. Which were these two other instances of him not waiting by her bed. And then him waiting by her bed. And now finally he's doing the right thing, you know. Mm. Um, and trying to be supportive but also honest. Yeah. Uh, where he, you know, when she says, like, why, why, is, why would the mission be costly? You know, he's not going to say oh, it just takes a lot of fuel or, you know, something like that. Like, he says covers are going to be blown, people might die, but keep in mind they're dying every day, you know? So it's yeah. like he's real with her and he's honest if she asks, but he's also trying to be gentle about it in a way that we haven't really ever seen him be. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, just I appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. He's actually my from another POV character. Oh, if you want to okay, that. let's go for it. So this is the section where we look at a point of view other than Katniss's. Obviously, we know who you brought. Yeah. So I also was really taken by Hamish's support of Katniss in this chapter, and I think that actually seeing those two scenes in comparison is really, really fascinating. Which two scenes? The scenes of when Katniss literally falls into his arms mm. and when she wakes up in bed with him there. 
Because yeah, maybe phrase that differently. <laughs> <laughs> when she wakes up in the med bay with her, with him there. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. <clears throat> no, because I think that you really astutely pointed out how in both these scenes we see him acting differently than he has with her in a very long, or really ever, and I think that that's really, like you said, showing how he's trying to to show up for her in ways that he hasn't in the past. In addition to that, I also see how the way he acts differently in those two scenes is really illustrative of, of, or for me, it was illustrative of kind of what I thought might be happening for him. Hmm. Because I do think you're absolutely right that when she woke up and he was trying to be good-natured and everything, I think that was him trying to do something he's not comfortable with and clearly not very good at <laughs> because she was able to see through him so easily. You were like, you seem like you're in too good of a mood, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, this is probably, you know, Chris's optimistic read, but <laughs> I don't think that he was pushing himself in the same way when he was helping her in the woods. I really read that as him being genuine um, and him being there to support her because he really does know. Just as Katniss thinks like she wants Hamish because he loves Peeta, mm -hmm. I think that he sees her pain and understands it in a way that is heartbreaking for him. You know, it, we kind of talked about how, how Katniss is someone who is more loving, is more giving when she sees people in pain. And I think that might be the case for Hamish here, not just because she's in pain, but because she's in the same pain he's in. Because he's clearly already worked out that all of this is the case, that all the things that they are doing, because he's supporting her as the Mockingjay, is hurting Peeta. Mm -hmm. He understands this because he's also shut himself off from everyone for so long because he understands how they'll be used against him by the Capitol. And so... Yeah, I was just thinking about how he must also be feeling so much despair at this moment. He must have so much of his own anxiety. I could imagine him still being, you know, angry with Katniss, but not about this, not about her being the Mockingjay, because he understands how hard that is. And then here, how sad it is to know that you are possibly causing your loved one pain in trying to do the right thing. One thing that, that came out was how, I know this is something that we talked about in one of our previous discussions, but this is one of the moments that Hamish calls Katniss sweetheart. Mm -hmm. And I think that unlike most of the times when he calls her sweetheart, he's not doing so in a way that is trying to be mocking, as trying to rile her up or snap her out of something. I think he's doing this because I, I like the reading of seeing that as an unintentional thing where he calls her sweetheart because he does feel for her and he does, does want to help her in some way. And, you know, it's the same thing as how he's saying, it's okay, it'll all be okay. He doesn't believe that, mm -hmm. but he's doing so because that's what she needs at the moment. And so, yeah, I, I think that Hamish in that scene is really just showing his compassion for her and his her his connection to her that for me felt authentic but over the day or so that she's asleep that kind of starts to break down <laughs> <laughs> and he you know has to kind of put on the airs of that for when she wakes up so yeah i just i was spending a lot a lot of time thinking about what Hamish may be going through and 
I like the reading that here he was comforting Katniss with the same authenticity by which Katniss actually turned to him. Yeah, I read it as authentic as well. It could even be, since this is not Hamish's normal mode, it could even be the sort of thing that he would even maybe recall a parent mm. or, you know, older sibling. We don't know very much about his family, but like the ways that maybe they would comfort him in his first reaping or, you know, if he was sick or, or, or whatever. And so, yeah, I could also see that kind of like going into into the memories that even he has for a time that maybe he felt comforted or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, whose perspective did you want to talk about? So there were two main ones that I was thinking about. And one is just a person from District 13 while they were in the bunkers. Mm. Because this was the first time I was kind of realizing when they have Katniss sleep on the ground because she flails around and everything in her sleep because of her nightmares that like basically the whole of District 13 witnesses Katniss and Fennec's nightmares yeah. likely if it's if this is three or four nights so I was thinking of someone you know instead of just maybe a admiring Katniss for her strength and all that she's done for the movement and destroying the arena and things like that or even maybe possibly judging her for not taking up the role of Mockingjay sooner mm -hmm. but those things just suddenly not seeming predominant in their view of her but them just suddenly gaining a kind of understanding or sympathy for her as they see just like a tiny bit of what she goes through and because of that what she's gone through yeah and over the course of a couple days having a completely new respect for Katniss because when they're leaving the bunker she mentions that some people are even smiling at her and she felt like you know it was because of the game with Buttercup but I'm like, I think maybe some of them, it could be they're smiling at her in encouragement yeah. or a new appreciation for her or, you know, even pity uh, or compassion. Yeah, I was just thinking about how odd that would be to witness when thus far Katniss is really only around at mealtimes. And now you just see her and her relationship with her family and this cat and her relationship with sleep. Not that Katniss wanted to reveal those layers, yeah. but they got them anyway. Yeah, I really like that, that interpretation. Especially, yeah, the reason why they're smiling at her. Mm -hmm. Because it does give, I think, a lot more humanity to random District 13 people as they're seeing her in more human ways, too. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the other person that I was thinking of their POV was Finnick. Hmm. Particularly in the conversation that he has with Katniss and then gives her his rope to, yeah. to keep with her until they get out of the bunker. I was just really thinking about his feelings about trying to balance being honest about how bad things can be be honest with his own experiences mm. 
and warn against certain things like falling apart because it's so much more difficult to try to piece things back together and you know also giving suggestions yeah. like the rope for coping mechanisms and things while also trying to not send someone into like a downward spiral into depressive oblivion you know mm-hmm. and so i was just like kind of feeling the tension of that of of him wanting to be real with her but also not make things worse so that she's less able to actually (laughs) deal with things or take very small actions to help make things a tiny bit better you know yeah just I I kind of feel that because like any anytime I talk with someone about like a health issue especially if people are are experiencing a little bit more chronic uh, Mm. issues it's just like I feel the tension of not wanting to completely terrify people of what can happen, but also warn enough so they hopefully take appropriate actions early on. You know, it's a very, like, weird balancing act. You don't want to just make people be so depressed or so fearful of something that might not happen to them, you know? Mm -hmm. But also aware enough so that if it could, they help, you know, they start doing things early before it gets to the point that I'm in, you know? And, yeah. and so it's just like, it's very complicated. So I was just kind of feeling that for him and thinking about him maybe not knowing the best way to care for Katniss because mm-hmm. he does care for Katniss. And so I feel like he could maybe also feel like even after the conversation's done, you know, questioning oh did i say too much did i not say enough should i you know yeah it's just it's it's a difficult place to be in when you might feel like because of the experiences you have you have a certain responsibility or insight that maybe other people don't have but you also (laughs) don't want to make things worse so yeah 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 that's really interesting and I think Finnick's perspective in this chapter is really interesting because I was wondering what he did that night after he gave his rope to Katniss. I know, right? Yeah, how he was coping. And I, I was really struck. One of the things I was thinking about talking about was how in command we see Katniss and Finnick joking and calling back to when they first met and he offered her sugar. And I loved how he moves from his sexy voice into his normal voice. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine how gratifying it is for Finnick to know he has someone in Katniss that he can joke around about this public persona that everyone knows him as Mm -hmm. with, that knows him, actually knows him well enough that this can be a joke for them instead of just his lived life and the Mm -hmm. the performance that he always has to do. Uh, I think it's really telling how Finnick also breaks down right after Katniss does. Mm -hmm. Makes sense after a night without his coping mechanism and after he's, yeah, also dealing with so much to to see someone who he's he's trying to help in, in, you know, these really hard ways that you described and see them break down well unlike can you imagine and then he sees her 
asks for Hamish, and Hamish goes over and comforts her. Well, he doesn't have his mentor, yeah. and he saw her die, and you yeah, know, like exactly. I could, it's just it's all so much. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that Finnick's perspective and his his coping this chapter is uh, also just so compelling and sad and powerful. Yeah. Oh, Finnick. <laughs> Well, why don't we move into our touch points? These are where we look at things happening in this chapter and also see some parallels or examples of similar things happening in our own world. What do you have? Yeah, so one quick one I wanted to talk about was the multi-directional elevators in District 13. Because <laughs> um, this is, I think, the second time they're mentioned. And... I feel like we're in the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> yeah, right. And... Yeah, I just, I think that it's a fun example of how oftentimes in these kinds of either dystopian or post-apocalyptic or sci-fi kind of things, we see these like future, futuristic technologies that once you actually think about it are immensely impractical (laughs) because we do have the technology to have an elevator that moves in two dimensions. Some parking structures in Japan use this where you pull into like a very small little space you get out of your car and then it takes your car somewhere yeah totally (laughs) and then when you're done you go back and it delivers your car and yeah exactly and so um i think that for that type of space it makes sense it's designed to be in this kind of cramped space and it's designed to fit things in these very distinct slots an actual society we don't need this kind of elevator and frankly, it would probably be a waste of space. So yeah, I just, I think it's always fun to see kind of technologies in sci-fi that once you start thinking about it, it's like, yeah, there's a reason we don't have those. <laughs> totally. But the main touch points I want to talk about are really dealing with kinds of bodily experiences that we see in this chapter. Mm. I was really struck by uh, the moment when Katniss starts imagining her body as having like fissures coming out from Mm, her heart yeah that was a great great description yeah yeah and her like imagining these kind of spreading through her body and just being ready to crack and kind of the visceral nature of how she's imagining her body as not just her body but this kind of metaphorical thing that she's living in and it struck me because it's a technique that i've used for good, uh, not in the same way, but in a a positive way, in meditation, where Mm -hmm. especially if I'm trying to kind of calm down or to go to sleep, uh, I learned a technique of imagining each part of my body and like the idea is like turning the power off on that part of your body, imagining it going to sleep to help my whole body go to sleep. And, you know, I think that for me, especially at first, that was really kind of a foreign, weird way of thinking about my body as kind of separate from me or as being in pieces or, you know, acting in a way that a body doesn't naturally act. And she does this naturally as, yeah, I think she envisions how fragile she is and um, how scared she is being in this bunker for so long and, and so forth. So, yeah, it just it made me think a lot about how disassociating from your body can be a symptom of trauma of you know anxiety and these other kinds of things but a intentional disassociation can also be used to help calm you to help you focus on breathing to help you you know uh you know, separate yourself from overwhelming emotions 
Um, and here we obviously see her being overwhelmed by it, not kind of using it in a positive way. But yeah, it just made me think about, you know, practices of being in touch with your body. Yeah, interesting. On top, top of that, the rope that they use to tie knots made me think a lot about coping mechanisms that people use when they're feeling overwhelming sense of anxiety or, or things like that. Um, you know, it kind of reminded me of how fidget spinners were trying to market themselves mm-hmm. as like being a method of relieving stress or releasing unfocused energy, um, none of which has been proven scientifically, uh, you know, that they actually can be helpful. Maybe they are for some people, but there haven't been any scientific studies that have actually confirmed that that's the case. Interesting. Yeah. But that took me to start doing a little bit of reading and and thinking about stimming, you know, which are self-stimulating behaviors that some people, particularly people on the autism spectrum, use to manage their emotions or overwhelming situations um, by, yeah, kind of stimulating parts of their body, possibly through repetitive behaviors or movements. And I think it's interesting because... For many people, stimming is not something that they started doing, yeah, as like an intentional practice. It wasn't after they read a bunch of studies on how <laughs> stimming can be beneficial. It was something that kind of naturally developed as a way of coping, uh, as a coping mechanism. Just, you know, understanding that this is helpful in releasing that tension or that energy in overwhelming situations. And it made me think about how for Finnick, um, you know, because he's lived so much in the ocean, the tying of the knot becomes so natural for him and this kind of interesting coping mechanism. Um, so yeah, I, I am someone who has not had to experience these kinds of things. I've never really been fidgety. Um, I've never felt the need to stim or anything like that, but it made me just start thinking about those physical coping mechanisms as well and, and wanting to do a little, a little bit of reading on that. <laughs> what? You say even though you often are like, slightly moving your leg i mean that's true yeah <laughs> i i think you might be a little fidgety not not that you're stimming but yeah so sometimes i can fidget <laughs> uh you know i, I i've never can you spin used a fidget spinner actually so i don't know maybe it'd be helpful for me i don't particularly know but yeah these are just interesting interesting connections i was making yeah what are your touch points so something i thought was really <laughs> amusing is that i think colin's american bias shows Mm. or maybe western bias because when it when they're up above ground talking about some of the damage that was done and whatnot they mentioned that a poultry farm was destroyed Mm. in the bombings and i'm just like district 13 would not have a poultry farm (laughs) because one pound of chicken takes about 500-ish gallons of water to mm. produce. In fact, just one slaughterhouse in a place called Livingston, California, used four to five million gallons of water in one day in their slaughtering process of chickens, which accounted for about 60% of the entire city's water usage. You know, they're using all of this water because it's used in, like, the electrocution baths in these scalding tanks to defeather the chickens, as well as to clean feces and vomit from the chickens' bodies because of the inhumane caging conditions, as well as, like, sometimes 
they're just like so terrified before they're slaughtered that they sell themselves. Mm. Torture is costly in utilities. Yes, yes, it is. As well as it takes 4.5 pounds of grain to produce one pound of edible chicken. Mm -hmm. The reason for edible is because, you know, we're not eating the bones, feathers, etc. And so that means that all of the fertilizer, tractor fuel, and fumes, transportation, etc. that go into producing one pound of grain are literally multiplied by 4.5 to produce that one pound of chicken. So District 13 would never allow that kind of waste or inefficiency. Mm-hmm. Like, if they're literally only having meals that have enough calories to get them to the next one, there is absolutely no way that they would use plants to feed the chickens so that they can have less food to eat. Yeah. So I was just like, okay, Collins, your bias is coming out here. <laughs> <laughs> She's usually on top of a lot of things, but I was like, you're not on top of this one. So had to bring that up. And then the other one that I was really thinking about is the use of sedatives. Hmm. Because yet again, Katniss is knocked out with a sedative that she didn't consent to. And so I was looking a little bit into sedatives and usage and things like that. They, They definitely can be used in an ethical way to make a person lose consciousness if they're like a patient with an acute psychiatric illness Mm -hmm. and their level of agitation is dangerous or potentially Mm life-threatening to themselves or others. But was Katniss in this situation really going to hurt herself or others? I don't think so. Like when she was sedated when she attacked Hamish before. Like, okay, I understand in that situation, but she wasn't attacking anyone. She was just sobbing. And, you know, so unless she was hyperventilating or something to the point where, like, it was actually medically dangerous, but it's not like they had, like, a medical staff person there to assess the situation, you know. They're just drugging her. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, there's not an amazing history with sedatives and tranquilizers. I'm um, guessing particularly in regards to women. <laughs> we'll get there. So there have been a number of reports that orphanages in North America, as well as some European countries, have used intravenous sedatives in order to keep children in the orphanages more manageable at different points in the 20th century. Also, as recently as 2018, some government officials have forcibly injected tranquilizers into migrant children that were being held at border facilities after they were separated from their families. Good all around. uh, Yeah. And then also going back to... 1960s-ish, around maybe a little earlier, a little later, in the United States, tranquilizers were heavily marketed to young women and housewives who were struggling with their mental health. Mm. Because it's, you know, one of those situations. Let's not address 
how women are treated like garbage in society and by their husbands and our unpaid live-in maids and nannies and are harassed at work if they can even get a job. Mm-hmm. No, let's just give them sedatives. They're just being hysterical. Right? Exactly. And it's like, well, and they even use the word hysterical or, yeah. or um, hysteria from kind of Katniss's own perspective. Yeah. It's just one of those, you know, they'll be easier to handle that way. So back then it's like, oh, well, they won't keep demanding things like voting rights and access to abortions, you know. And in this case, it's like, oh, well, we won't have to deal with her sobbing and maybe making other people like Finnick also start. And, you know, and it's just like, what? Why? Why are you doing this? (laughs) This is not okay. Why are you just? Yeah. Making someone unconscious because they are emotionally unwell. Yeah. They don't give her access to therapy. They don't try to help her process or deal with in healthy ways. They stick her in front of a camera and make her be the symbol of this revolution at age 17. And and in the times when they see her unraveling then they just knock her out and put her in the hospital and then make plans for her yeah 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 pretty awful i mean yeah the other thing that came to my mind of course is roofies and people who will yeah drug the drinks of other people uh in particular women so that they can rape them yeah so yeah i think that sedatives have so many gendered implications and Mm -hmm. the use of that word hysteria really did speak to that absolutely yeah yep oh touch points my favorite time of the day (laughs) so uplifting (laughs) well why should we move on to our wonderments maybe those will be more uplifting we'll see sure so i wanted to know more about the planning of this mission to go and extract Peta and annie Mm mm-hmm Hamish describes it as organized by Plutarch, which I found very interesting. So it made me wonder about, you know, what extent he still is a kind of spy master in the capital, because they talk about how he still has people undercover there, not like the rebellion does. So it seems like he still is an organizing presence in those elements. Um, And, you know, he's also not a military mind, Mm -hmm. Uh, he's in command, but he's there as, yeah, someone who is clearly able to talk a lot about the capital and their priorities and their infrastructure and and systems, but also as the person who's in charge of the Mockingjay propo arm of the, the rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unlike the movie, (laughs) where it looks like, um pseudo-military operation. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be how it would be done. It would be smuggling them out. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's interesting that he's the one in charge of this mission. Um, You know, what does it mean to have a non-military person in charge of something like that? Uh, What does Coin think about the mission? Because he's not really mentioned at all by Hamish at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I just, it kind of raised a lot of questions of how it was planned, um, what what hand Plutarch had in it, and then 
what Plutarch's role is outside of what we see in the books. Agreed. I'd be very interested. And like, yeah, just, I just wonder about all of these capital rebels that mm-hmm. are, and what their role has been throughout this entire process. Have some of them just been kind of standing by in case they're ever needed? Or are they kind of daily doing things that are aiding in one way or another the the revelation? Yeah, absolutely. What's your wonderment? So I was wondering about Hamish's use of the term the boy. Hmm. Because when he's talking to Boggs, he says, how much of an edge did the boy's warning give you Mm. and i was just very curious why he used that instead of pita i don't know if it's because that's his own subconscious distancing yeah out of a sense of shame maybe and guilt over not saving him over him having had a, a a role to play in the situation that Peta's in um, by choosing Katniss by not telling Peta. So I didn't I didn't know if it was that. I didn't know if it makes him feel, you know, as he's tried to distance himself from seems like everyone in life. Like if this is sort of the way he thinks about people generally. Mm just like putting up a wall to try to shield himself emotionally or is this him trying to i don't know remind bogs and district 13 people that he is a boy Mm. um as they've in the past wanted to charge him with uh, crimes or whatever war crimes yes um so yeah i don't know it was just it was making me very curious that is curious yeah now i want to look back and see how he refers to Peta throughout the series like i'm thinking of when at the beginning of catching fire he tells katniss that she'll never be worthy of him you know in a thousand lifetimes mm-hmm. and i wonder yeah did use <laughs> I, think his name was, there, I think it was a hundred but i love yeah. how you've done yeah. hyperbole because of your love of Peta. that's true but yeah i, I just I'm, I'm curious as to yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. I know. Now I want to, like, go reread everything previous to be like, how is he talking about people? <laughs> Next season on <laughs> Geek Between the Lines. Language usage. <laughs> Starting back at the beginning of Hunger Games. Let's just go through them again. <laughs> Continual loop. <laughs> But why don't we move into the last segment of this episode, which is our intentions. What are you taking from this conversation or from the chapter that you want to implement in your own life or keep in mind? Well, now I kind of want to keep an eye on to what extent I do fidget. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I really do not pay much attention to my body, so... Um, I mean, you're fidgeting right now. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's just something that that um, maybe I could do some more interrogating of my own fidgeting. But the one that I, I really came prepared with was that I want to keep an eye on other victors' mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I think I really focus on Katniss and Peeta, but this chapter, thinking about Hamish and Finnick, made me really want to think about uh, how other characters are, are coping and what it might be like for them, um, even if we don't get their perspective the same way that we get so much focus on the core characters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what's your intention? I think mine is actually to eventually, a very busy currently, but eventually make my way back to therapy because I've mm. been in for a while now and just really thinking about Katniss and Finnick and Finnick's quote about it's better not to give in to it. It takes 10 times as long to put yourself back together as it does to fall apart. I think I've very much lived a lot of my life that way mm. because I think at the back of my mind I am concerned that if I actually did dive into all of the, you know, overwhelming dysfunction and uh, negative or traumatic experiences in my life that I would, I, I just, I don't know how I would be. <laughs> yeah. Like even sometimes, you know, I'll do some writing, some poetry and whatnot, and then you'll, and if I show it to you, you'll be like, oh, is, is this how you feel like all the time? And I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, it's like super dark, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not something that I dwell on or really think about in my daily life until it gets to a point where it's like I break down for a little bit and then, you know, like an hour or something and then I go back to my normal. But every time I sit down to write something, these sorts of things come out. So it's clearly still there somewhere, but... um yeah, I mean, there is the fear of if if I let myself <laughs> fall apart, you know, will I ever be able to manage? Yeah. I, I don't know if that's founded in anything real or not. I, I mean, I think generally therapy helps people <laughs> rather than does the opposite. Um, and, and it's definitely helped me in the past. So, yeah, I think I would like to probably go back again and delve into more and maybe more deeply than mm. than previously well I, I think that that's great and I, I think that it's always a very brave decision to confront those things and, and to seek therapy so I I support you <laughs> I know <laughs> I'm not opposed to it it's just you know totally I, I benefited from it a lot in the past, and I was like, okay, good. But, yeah, I think there's probably still more work to be done. <laughs> Isn't there always? <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will wrap up this week's discussion. What's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be reading Chapter 12. And what happens in that chapter? A diversion. Thanks, Legolas. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description, and we hope that you'll join us on Patreon to become a supporter of the show. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or search them on Instagram or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Till then, keep, keep out. out.